From WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes, a podcast about Wisconsin politics and politicians. I'm Marty Michelson. Each week, I discuss noteworthy developments with J.R. Ross, editor of WISPolitics.com. Here's our latest conversation. So, J.R., after weeks of anticipation, the conservative Wisconsin Supreme Court overturned Democratic Governor Tony Evers' safer-at-home order last week, effective immediately. Schools are still closed, but most non-essential businesses can resume operations unless local governments have their own stay-at-home restrictions. At this time, there's no statewide plan for protecting public safety or reopening the economy, Do you expect Evers' administration and Republican legislative leaders to craft a plan, or will Wisconsin move forward with this patchwork of rules from one community to another? Well, one, there's a process called the emergency rule process, and basically it's an expedited process to put a regulation in place that an agency wants. Uh, The Evers' administration released a, it's called a scope statement um, late last week. It's basically the framework for that rule, and they lay out the goals and some of the aims of the rule, but it's not really spelled out, you know, in specifics. And that's, that scope statement basically carried a lot of the same goals as what the stay-at-home order has had. Now, Republicans obviously did not like the stay-at-home order that was extended through May 26th. If the rule that the Evers administration drafts looks a lot like that, don't expect it to go very far. But we saw late last week. Steve Noss, who co-chairs the Joint Committee for Review of Administrative Rules, called in the Evers administration to withdraw that scope statement. Uh, that's key because he is co-chair of the committee that has authority over those rules. Once that rule is put in place, his committee can suspend parts or all of it. So if Evers does something Republicans don't like, they can nix it right away. The message is getting from Republicans, though, is they're comfortable letting locals make their own decisions, and they want to rule more about what happens if there's a flare-up. What tools do we have if there is a, a spike at some point in the future from COVID-19? They're not interested in going back to a stay-at-home order or restricting businesses. The line for Republicans has become people should be able to make their own choices, let them use their good judgment, and don't take away. If you don't feel safe, stay home, but don't take away the economic opportunity of those who want to get back out there in the public. The vote to lift the safer-at-home order was 4-3, to three, with conservative Justice Brian Hagedorn voting with the liberal justices on the court against overturning it. In fact, Hagedorn wrote the dissenting opinion. Did this come as a shock in legal and political circles? Uh, yes and no. People knew that Hagedorn had a different view of this case because he is the former chief legal counsel to Governor Scott Walker. That means that his, his view of executive powers were shaped by that experience. He knows uh, what governors do to deal with uh, emergency situations. He understands the emergency rule process from a different perspective. So it wasn't really shocked that he had a different view of things. What is interesting is that in his ruling, he believed that lawmakers did not have the power to sue over this in the first place, which is, uh, drew a rebuke from his conservative colleagues on the court. Uh, if you read the, the footnotes of the decisions, Justices Rebecca Bradley and Daniel Kelly took Hagedorn to task on a number of fronts for his ruling. Now, things we'll watch the Hagedorn going forward are this is the second big kind of high-profile case where he broke with his conservative colleagues. Recall there's a lawsuit pending before the court about whether to remove from the voter rolls those who may have moved but didn't respond to a mailing from the State Election Commission. When the court was first asked to take that case directly, Hagedorn voted no. Um, That kind of 
torqued off some Republicans who had rallied his, his side last year in his election. Watch what happens going forward with that case, because now it's back to the court again, not just about whether to take it, but uh, the appeals court has ruled in that case. Now we're getting back to the merits of that uh, case. Maybe he'll be in a different position there. Also, there are challenges pending for the Supreme Court right now about the governor's veto powers, when it comes, partial veto powers, when it comes to the budget and spending bills. Again, because Hagedorn's view is shaped by that time the executive branch, might he be a little more willing to allow a governor that kind of latitude than maybe some of the other conservative colleagues? This is something to watch going forward. Do you think Hagedorn will take heat for this? And is he going to be considered a reliable conservative vote on the court from now on? Well, he's definitely um, irritated some conservatives. Now, there's, there's the grassroots conservative base that is unhappy about the result. There's kind of your, your federal society type um, conservative legal circles that sees the process by which Hagedorn arrived at his decision. They don't like the decision, but they kind of understand the process. That said, yeah, they're disappointed. But he's got nine years so he's up for re-election. So I don't know if this is going to hang around for nine years. What is going to be interesting going forward is come August 1st, conservative Daniel Kelly is replaced by liberal Jill Karofsky on the court. So if you have Hagedorn now breaking with conservatives more often, that really comes into play. Right now, with a 5-2 majority, they can lose him. Conservatives can and still get a decision through. But now he becomes more of a wild card in cases like this when you have a much more evenly divided court. Also last week, the DNC took some major steps toward altering the structure of the Democratic National Convention in Milwaukee. A DNC committee approved giving planners flexibility to make changes, including adding virtual components to the convention. Up until now, DNC Chair Tom Perez seemed adamant about holding an in-person event here. Why do you think there was such an about-face? Oh, just the uncertainty. I mean... That convention has faced uncertainty since the day COVID-19 really kind of became in the public's awareness. We just don't know. Is it going to be safe come late summer to have thousands of people in a room in an arena in Milwaukee? I don't know. Uh, Is it going to be safe to have people congregate? I don't know. So possibly we'll have to find some alternative. Um, It just depends. It depends on how this, this, this pandemic plays out. It depends on when it's safe. I mean, you can't just stop a convention on a dime. You have to make a decision well in advance of of the actual dates are going to meet or want to meet Milwaukee. So keep an eye on that. But it's all going to be dictated probably by do people feel safe meeting like that. Now, Republicans keep saying they're going full steam ahead with their convention in Charlotte. There are some local officials in Charlotte who aren't as enthused about that idea because of what it could mean. Because you're not just talking about uh, the delegates who are congregating at the convention. You're talking about journalists not just from the United States but around the world. It is a... It is a gathering of people from a lot of different backgrounds, a lot of different places that could cause some issues. So just where is that, where is that um, virus come late summer? That's the key I want to know before I can tell you what's going to happen with conventions. If the convention goes mostly virtual, would it be less successful in building momentum for presumptive nominee Joe Biden? Well, they're definitely less of a financial impact for Milwaukee, and that's one of the reasons why Milwaukee officials were so happy to land the convention. There'd be less of a presence from Democrats in Wisconsin, which is a key state for them this fall. So there are all kinds of downsides not being here. But again, do people feel safe? Um, is it safe to have, let's face it, there are a lot of elected officials in both parties who are, who are older. Um, they're kind of in the, the most vulnerable demographic. Is it safe to have those folks in a room with people who may be infected? I, we'll see. But if there isn't a convention, 
in person. Um, it's a, it's a up in the air how effective you can be. How do you how do you craft that convention to connect with people? You're not going to have. I mean, already you're not going to have the same crowds that you were going to have pre COVID nineteen with the convention. It's just not going to happen. The question now is, do you still get four straight nights of wall to wall coverage on the cable networks? Do you still get a primetime slot for your nominee to speak on national broadcast outlets? I mean, what's it going to look like? It's just a totally different situation than it was just a few months ago. And finally, Republican State Senator Tom Tiffany won the congressional seat in northern Wisconsin that Sean Duffy vacated. It wasn't surprising that Tiffany won the seat, seeing as though the district is solid red. But because Tiffany won the seat so handily, are there implications for November? Well, see, that's the thing. Um, President Trump won that district by, by more than 20 points in 2016. Sean Duffy, his last re-election, he won it by 21.6 percentage points. So Tiffany got a 14-point win, but that's not quite the mark that we've seen before. Now, here are the caveats. Special elections are odd ducks. It's a lower turnout race than what you're going to see come November when Trump is on the ballot. Um, Democrats, honestly, if they had gotten a single-digit win for Tiffany, they would have been thrilled. They've been talking about what a bad sign it was for Republicans. If Republicans had managed to have Tiffany hit the 20-point margin that Trump got, they'd have been thrilled. They kind of ended up somewhere in the middle, and they're both spinning it. You know, Republicans saying, hey, this is not a big deal because these uh, special elections don't mean much for what happens in November. Democrats saying, look, if Trump's even off five points in the 7th Congressional District compared to where he was four years ago, that's a troubling thing for him because he can't afford to lose those, those key voters especially if places like Milwaukee are more engaged than they were four years ago for Hillary Clinton, if they turn out better for Joe Biden, especially if Democrats can have some kind of presence in rural Wisconsin and bounce back a bit from where they were before. I mean, this state is so razor-thin close. Anything can make a difference. Because don't forget, Trump won Wisconsin in 2016 by 0.77 percentage points. That is razor-thin. Any movement in the suburbs of Milwaukee, in rural Wisconsin, bigger turnout in Milwaukee could have an impact because it's just 23,000 votes. That's all it was. If you can find something to move 23,000 votes, you can change who wins Wisconsin this fall. That's WISPolitics.com editor J.R. Ross. You can join us each week for our conversations. And if you haven't done so already, subscribe to Capital Notes on iTunes, NPR One, or wherever you get your podcasts.